Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what is up, everybody? We're heading we're heading south today, not south of the border, just just south. We've got Parker McDonald Sawyer. I got Sawyer to my right, by the way. That's the northern pronunciation, right? Yep, that's a little northern twang on that one. Northern twang. Uh, we're gonna talk today about Parker. Uh, he's got some really cool platforms that he's built, how he got into deer hunting, southern deer hunting in general, maybe some Alabama specifics, and uh, all that good stuff. And it sounds like you've actually been, you've already been hunting, Parker, so we want to talk about that. But before we uh, before we get too deep, as I like to say, if you can, introduce yourself and uh, let's just talk about, yeah, you, what you have going on, how you got into hunting, and, and all that good stuff. Sure. So, um, appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, I'm, my name is Parker McDonald. I'm from, I'm actually originally from West Texas, uh, Midland, Odessa, Permian Basin area. That's where I was born and raised at and moved over here to Alabama uh, when I was, I guess I was about 18 when I moved here and uh, it's a whole different hunting culture. Even though Texas is technically South, um, it's kind of more of a Southwest type thing. And if anybody's ever hunted Texas, you kind of know like, there's not a lot of public land. It's in West Texas. There's virtually none. Uh, it's pretty much like a pay to play type thing. There's a lot of high fence ranches and stuff like that. Highly managed uh, farms and and ranches and stuff out there. And so I grew up doing just the that that stuff. My dad would work hard. We didn't have a whole lot of money by any means. We weren't. My dad's a pastor, so we didn't have the oil filled money that a lot of people had out there. So he worked hard, saved up money, and uh, got on a lease every year and that was pretty much how I grew up hunting. And um, I had family here in Alabama, so we would hunt here just about every year. And I always thought, man, what would it be like to have to live in Alabama? Alabama is just that's the that's like the mecca for deer hunters. You could you do whatever you want here, you know, and uh, I've, I've learned that that's truly not the case. Um <laughs> But it is it is a whole different story when you move to a state like Alabama from a state like Texas. I love Texas. I've got the Texas pride even still. I haven't lived in Texas for years, but like somebody talks about Texas, I'm tuning in. I'm I you know puff up my chest, and I'm sure everybody's heard about the Texas pride, and you know everything's bigger and better in Texas, and it's true. Um, <laughs> That's a true it statement. Is, it is a true statement. High school football is really the only football that matters. Uh, there's, you know, just things like that. But, but no, I I moved here in uh, I guess it was 2009, and pretty much started doing the hunting club thing. You know, out here you have hunting clubs. It's the same thing as a lease, pretty much. But and I had success on the hunting clubs. Like it was it was good for me. You know, as a single, you know, college age guy having a hunting club close to home was great for me. I was able to have a, have my job. I worked in the church at the time and um, that's what moved me here in the first place. And uh, it, it was great to have, to have that, you know, at, at my fingertips pretty much I could go out, but I, but it really didn't teach me much about hunting in general. And it wasn't until a few years later that I started really getting into the, the, the public land hunting type stuff. And I'll tell you one of the things that that really helped me along the way was discovering hunting podcasts. So at the time there was really you had uh Mark Kenyon doing Wired to Hunt. You had maybe uh Randy Newberg may have done his podcast at the time. Uh, but that didn't really apply to me for where I was at. It was mostly talking about Western big game type stuff. And so I really learned a lot from listening to Mark Kenyon and he was talking to a lot of people, but even then it didn't apply completely to me because he was mostly talking to Western, I mean, not, not Western, Midwestern and Northern guys, which is a totally, I'm not going to say it's a totally different game because whitetails are whitetails, but when you, when you add in kind of the weather and the terrain and the vegetation and the, the pines that we have here, you know, clear cuts, there's a lot of things that that don't translate as well. And so I'm just kind of fast forwarding and fast forwarding through. I started this whole kayak thing where I would access the public lands that I was hunting through kayak. And that's really how I started hunting public land because it just made sense to me. 
you have these big chunks of public that are you're not able to walk to them probably a lot of people aren't going to be boating to them maybe a few but still not not nearly as many as the people walking in on the big you know walk-in access areas and so it just made sense to me to, to hunt that way and so i started doing that ended up being really successful my first year tagging out three bucks here in alabama killed a few does as well and uh really my first year hunting public land i had probably one of my best seasons that i've ever had hunting private land even you know like it was my eyes were open to the possibilities and uh went on a podcast with dan johnson from uh nine finger chronicles and built that relationship ended up starting a podcast on his network through sportsman's nation that led to saying like hey i'm gonna just start filming stuff there's a lot of crazy crap that happens when you're out here on a kayak in the cold weather by yourself at four o'clock in the morning i might as well try to get stuff on film it seems interesting it's interesting to me maybe some other people be interested in it started the youtube channel and that's kind of led to where we're at now man hunting all across the south and the midwest and um, trying to do as many opportunity type hunts as i can and uh recently just just switched to uh working for myself so i'm full-time self-employed which opens up a lot more doors for me to kind of make my own schedule and hunt hunt when I want to hunt work when I need to work <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to work work when I need to work and make money to uh to support this crazy passion and put food on the table and stuff like that but so that's kind of where we're at now you know just got back from Tennessee doing a hunt there and have a short turnaround really just a layover at my house before I go to North Dakota tomorrow so uh, headed up to North Dakota for the first time. That'll be a be a pretty cool, pretty cool trip. I'm gonna bow hunt for the opener up there. Well, thank God you escaped that crazy football culture in Texas. Now you're in Alabama. Football total afterthought, right? Just yeah, nobody a, cares about football here. Just not a thing. Just, just like, yeah, it's so something it was, to do on a Friday, I guess. You know, I didn't know where you were going with that. I was like, are you trying to get us killed? For God's so, sakes! So the funny thing about it that I didn't realize. So in Texas, people care about college football, but it's not. It's not quite the same in Texas. It's high school football. Like everybody goes on Friday night to the high school football game. That's just what they care about. I remember uh, growing up, all of the football stadiums for every town was that was like the centerpiece of the town, you know, like high school football stadium. They were going to put a crap ton of money into that thing. And it was going to be the most popping place in the fall on Friday nights. That's where everybody went. And uh, I moved here to Alabama and I'm like, well, the crap, these, these football stadiums are just junky, you know, like it's like a stand that'll fit maybe a hundred people, like bleachers that'll fit like a hundred people in them. Uh, the grass is, you know, brown and it's not turf, you know, like we were playing on turf fields in West Texas because people care out here. It's like Fridays are good and all everybody, you know, people play football, but it's really people live for Saturday here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live for that. Alabama football and you know there's a few Auburn fans fans spread throughout but it's all about the tide man that's what people care about I don't personally I'm like whatever it's deer season I'm not <laughs> I'm not paying attention to any of it you know I don't have the capacity to keep up with deer season and football so I just kind of left that in Texas <laughs> that's 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 too much for anybody did you uh did you play football when you're in Texas play high school football I did yeah I played high school football in Texas I, you're kind of like if you don't play high school football in Texas, like it probably is because you have like a physical disability. Like most people play high school football in, in Texas. Like, and I grew up uh, in Midland, Odessa. I didn't play for Midland for the, like the big schools. Uh, I went to a smaller school and played there. And I mean, every, every guy, pretty much played football like it was kind of like just a given it's just what you do that'll be uh, that'll be our next podcast we'll just do a bunch of high school football stories with you we'll relive those glory days <laughs> would have went pro if it wasn't for you yeah know. i was not built to play football you know like i was just not not on any high level i you just five foot six is five foot six man it's always going to be five foot six Parker, just not, you did your best and that's all that matters i think everyone i can, did everyone can relate to that you darn my dad right my, my dad always, he always said that I was like Rudy um, <laughs> growing up. Rudy uh, is like my, my spirit animal, man. He's a, he was my hero. What every son wants to hear from their dad. 
Hey, you're yeah. just like Rudy, son. You'll maybe yeah. you'll maybe you'll get in there. I tell you what, <laughs> Sawyer, I cry every time I watch it. That's yeah, a g- great film. I I, <laughs> I identify with that film as well, uh, Parker. I want to I want to circle back to your most recent hunt, but I want to get into kind of you know going back into the southern deer hunting and particularly Alabama. When you and I we we've talked one time before, but this is like I remember reading an article. This article is probably in the '80s, maybe not that far back, but it was oh, it was called date, dating yourself. Here. I know, right? Wow. It was uh, I found it in a library archive. It was called Two Deer Day, Alabama, and I was like, "What is this strange land?" Because I was coming from a background. I grew up hunting uh, blacktails in Western Washington, and uh, you know, it was a three essentially a three week three weekend like uh, like you know whatever two weeks one week whatever and you got three weekends to hunt deer because i only i had school so i'd hunt deer for those three weekends and then you got one additional weekend in november which was oftentimes a real good one but you know just hunting that much and they're fairly reclusive like there'd be days when i didn't see a deer you know there'd be seasons where i didn't see a buck and i'm like oh my gosh i need to get to alabama two deer a day unbelievable so then when I was chatting with you a while back, I was like, dude, tell me about it. Tell me what it's like. I haven't been there yet. And you're like, oh, man, that's really hard. And I was like, what are you talking about? So what, what's going on? What's going on there? Like, it seems like the seasons are super liberal. The bag limits are super liberal. And yet it can still be pretty darn tough hunting. Yeah. So we actually that I want to say that was changed probably a little over a decade ago. No. Um, used to, you go. could kill, you could kill a buck and a doe every day or two does, I believe every day of the season. Like that was just, and people did it. If you've got, if you've got some of the yellow acorns out there, like <laughs> you can find, you can kill two does a day, you know? And by that, I mean, corn, which at the time was also illegal, but people did it. That's just the way people hunted. And, uh, so I was like, I, I remember you, you, you had me there for a second. I was like, hmm, yellow acorns, and white acorns, red acorns. Yeah. Oh, yellow <laughs> acorns. The special yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, the the special ones that grow that that grow in a in a bag, in a 50-pound bag. <laughs> no, and, and it was like I can remember growing up coming here, like I said, I would visit. I actually killed my first deer here in Alabama. And uh it was a little buttonhead buck. And Man, like, I just thought it was amazing. There was deer on every corner, you know, and, and there really wasn't that there was, there's not. And I think, I think people have like a, there's like a misconception of like, oh, they have liberal bag limits. That must mean there's more deer that, that makes sense, but it's really, it, it, it's the exact opposite. Now, I think we have suffered from that lack of preserving resource. And, and so now we're trying to recover. And, uh, and so now I think it's, it's three bucks, uh, three bucks a year. So it's still pretty liberal compared to most States, three bucks a year. And then some, in some units and some zones in the state of Alabama, you can actually still kill a doe a day with a rifle. And in, I think the, I think statewide, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think statewide, you can kill a doe a day with your bow. So if that, you get the opportunity or if you want to. So that was going to be my question, Parker, when you talked about the kind of liberal bag limits and season structure. And you mentioned, so at the time, was that a result of the number of deer that were on the landscape? I would find it hard to believe that there weren't many hunters in Alabama. Was that the case or was it more of just uh, they wanted to create a bunch of opportunity for everyone and kind of deal with it later? I don't really know. I mean... I know back then you you had a lot of places and most places you were doing people were hunting with dogs. If you can kind of look at Florida's recent uh, changes to their whole structure and bag limit. Florida for years it's been the same way. You could kill like a buck a day or something like that. And now they've recently changed it to where I think it's like five bucks a year a season or something like that. But it has to be like that's statewide, but you have to, it only a certain amount can be from each zone or something like that. I'm not super well-versed in Florida, but I know they just changed a lot of it. And, and Florida's in my opinion, the, and a lot of people's opinion, the hardest state to hunt for whitetails in the United States. And it's because it's just, it's hot. Everything wants to bite you. Everything wants to eat you. Um, and there's just not a lot of deer there. There there's a few, there are deer there and there's pockets of higher densities, but for the most part, 
I mean, for a non-resident tag, you can go there for, I think, a 10-day license, like 40 bucks. So you can tell, obviously, they're not like, come hunt Florida, you know, mm-hmm. then it's just not a thing that people do. And so Alabama is kind of the same way. The other thing about Alabama is that um, we have a lot of hills and hollers and thickets and woods, not a lot of like real big ag land like you would have in another state. So there's not a lot of those big um, destination food sources where you could go out to, let's say you were out in, uh, I don't know, Iowa, for example, you go out to Iowa and sit on a bean field, you're going to see a lot of deer come to that. Every deer within that area is going to come to that bean field at some point. In Alabama, you just have hills, hollers, maybe a food plot here and there, but not not really. Um, and there's there's a little bit of agriculture, but not much, you know. And so the deer, their, their food sources are going to be more of uh, browse in a clear cut, in a, a real thick clear cut, or um, during the fall, they're going to be eating acorns and, and doing that stuff, which you're not every deer in the, in a square mile is not going to come to one single oak tree to eat those acorns. That's just not the way it works. So, so the destinations are spread farther apart and you can't really go to a place and just see a whole bunch of deer just come into one food source. Like you can in a lot of other States. And so I think Alabama's deer densities are not, they're not struggling. They're not bad. Our buck to doe ratio might be off just a little bit, but um, we, we have, a pretty decent deer density, but actually hunting those deer is difficult because there's no like destination places to go. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like you don't have that level of predictability that you might get, you know, with, with exactly. a big egg food source. And it's funny, you know, always, not always, but talk about like crossover between hunts, right? You can always learn something from, you know, one hunt and apply it to a different area. And just hearing you describe Alabama, that's really, there's a lot of similarities to actually hunting blacktails on the West Coast, at least so, you know, and, and I guess I'm talking more like um, like Washington, Oregon Coast, you know, maybe maybe not like uh, mm-hmm. California blacktails, but no real food sources. I mean, yeah, there's definitely some, you know, people have, you know, some occasionally, you know, but by and large, you're looking at uh, clear cuts and browse. I mean, you're hunting a combination of big timber, clear cuts, things like that, gated logging road systems. And uh, it's interesting to hear about you talk about whitetails in similar way. And I think going from Texas to Alabama too, Parker, I know you said the, was it the first year you, you hunted public in Alabama, you had success. Can you describe kind of the, the change in strategy and maybe the change in approach? Because Texas versus Alabama, very different. Neither is better than the other. If it's legal, if it's ethical, go do it, right? Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. But I think the difference is potentially in strategy, hearing you describe the landscape. What did that learning curve look like as far as kind of changing the style and in, in kind of the way you hunt? Did you need all different gear? Uh, was there more time spent scouting, less time spent scouting? Like, what did that transition look like? Yeah, uh, so... That first year doing public land hunting was, it was a lot of scouting. I mean, a lot. I don't do nearly as much now um, in Alabama because I pretty well have the area covered. I know what a lot of the stuff offers and I do most of my scouting during turkey season anyways when I'm going to be moving around. And so as far as my summer and off season scouting, I'm not doing just a ton of that unless I get a wild hair, I find something that I haven't ever been to before. And I'm just like, let's go check it out at least. But most of the time, even, even at that, I'm just going to wait till the season and find the fresh sign and go in and just burn a hunt on it, to be honest with you. And so that first year was a lot of paddling, um, finding, I'll tell you one of the most important parts to the style of hunting that I was doing and that I still am doing with the kayak is making sure that the areas that I was going to paddle to and spend that much effort going to making sure for sure that they were not accessible by, by walking. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's a lot of places, if you look in at Onyx maps or something, there may not be, there may be a trail in there that from a road that you don't even know exists because it doesn't show up on the map that happens pretty often. And so I spent a lot of time, 
driving the perimeter everywhere possible that I could go because I don't want to get up at two o'clock in the morning, start paddling at 3 a.m. and paddle into a spot only to find out that I could have got up at five o'clock and walked in there and and set up, mm-hmm. you know, and, and potentially walk in and find somebody else there set up. That's not what I want to do. There are still advantages to coming by the water, though, that we can talk about here in a little bit. There's just there's a different advantage, even if it's a walk in area. If you have the ability to come in by water, there are advantages to that. But my main advantage, I just I don't want to deal with people. You know, I'm I'm probably a terrible public land hunter because I don't really like dealing with the public much. And so I really try to find those places that I can just kind of recluse. And um, because the other thing that I know, too, is if if nobody else is able to walk in there, a lot of those deer are probably living in there and have been living in there their whole life. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one of the things that looked a lot different to me. I was I was doing boots on the ground scouting type stuff. But more than anything, I spent a lot of time driving, finding different places I could put my boat in, different ramps, making sure that I could get there and then driving perimeters and trying to find, you know, and, and I marked off a lot of spots. I mean, I know it sounds like it wouldn't maybe be, it'd be pretty easy to figure out from a map, but I marked off tons of spots because I would end up finding places that somebody could walk in. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you're always going to deal with private land pressure on these little pieces like this, because most of the time the private land that borders up against a lot of these pieces of property, they've been using that property like it's their own for years. And which why not? I mean, I would if I had a landlocked piece of public land behind my house, I definitely would. Um, so you get a little bit of pressure in that regard, but it's not it's not anything to you know be too terribly concerned about. Mm-hmm. I don't think I deal with most of that during turkey season anyway because people are moving around so much. Yeah, but um, during deer season, for the most part, like I just I, I I rarely in Alabama I rarely see anybody when I use my kayak. I mean. I can't even think of a time that I have, to be honest with you, in in my kind of home home range area. I think to rewind so, a, to rewind a little bit and to touch more on Mark your question about hunting culture in Alabama, and I know it's tough to kind of paint broad strokes because there's so many hunters and everyone does it a little different. But you mentioned hunting clubs, and yeah. I think potentially for a lot of people listening, that might be a point of confusion only in semantics. Like it might be describing something that they do just with a different name. So one, what is a hunting club and kind of how does that work and how common is it in Alabama? And two, kind of what is the general hunting culture like in the state? Is it a lot of complete diehard 40 days a year type guys? Is it a big mix? Like for Wisconsin, for example, we have a ton of bow hunters, but a lot of the folks, it's really compressed into that rifle season. Mm -hmm. Like that's like the Super Bowl for a lot of folks. So what does that look like in Alabama? Yeah. So the hunting culture is huge. A lot of people deer hunt. I will say this. And I was talking to Zach Farrenball from the hunting public the first year that they came and deer hunted here. And uh, he was like, man, I just imagine there would be more people on this WMA that we hunted. He was like, just what everybody says, it seems like there would be more people out here. Um, so the way that our, 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 the WMA type system. I'm, I'm, I'm getting into going to get into kind of the hunting culture with this. Um, the WMAs have gun hunts on certain weekends throughout the season. So even though it's gun season on the WMAs on most WMAs, they're only going to have certain weekends that you can actually gun hunt their boat. You can bow hunt season long, but you can only gun hunt it on the certain weekends. While the hunting culture is huge here, the bow hunting culture is not. So most of these places you can get into and pretty much feel like you have the whole WMA to yourself because most people are chasing around, you know, going from if public land hunters are going from WMA to WMA on the gun hunt weekends and just gun hunting or they're hunting, you know, they've got private land that they can gun hunt or whatever. Um, our gun season literally goes from like November. So if you went statewide, like November the 15th through February 10th. Wow. is our rifle season. Holy cow. So it's long, man. And, and so you have plenty of time and most people and the ruts so spread out out here. Like you have pretty much from that moment, from the beginning of gun season to the end of gun season, you can find a, a primary rut in the state of Alabama. So that's one thing that's just a little bit different from the rest of the, of the country. Um, the South has just weird rut times for whatever reason. 
so that that's kind of tells you a little bit about the hunting culture it's not die hard like you're not going to find a lot of people that's why you don't see a lot of people using a boat to access these properties because it's not really die hard there are a few and that that is growing with kind of some of the exposure that you're getting with public land access and um, the whole saddle hunting thing that's going on and like so you get a lot of you're getting some growth there but for the most part most people are hunting mom or nims you know back 40 with a rifle shooting does and small bucks and it's just that's kind of more the the hunting culture Mm -hmm. so hunting clubs a hunting club is what a lot of people belong to um if they don't have like family land or permission properties most people who hunt are on a club a club is basically just a lease and it can be it can range from you know 100 acres to 10,000 acres you know it's there's there's small ones big ones and it's all membership based and so basically what they're doing we have a lot of timber timber companies out here and and uh and like logging type companies that own big chunks of land and so they'll lease the hunting rights of that property to a hunting club and a, the club president will figure out how many members he needs to support that, the cost of the lease and to pay for food plots, corn, whatever they're doing there. And he'll open it up and they'll do, they'll basically do kind of just a, a short interview. Every, every hunting club I've been on, they kind of do a short interview type process. Um, nothing. I mean, it's nothing formal at all. You ride around the roads, they talk to you for a little bit, you pay your dues and you hunt there for the rest of the season. And um, they have work days where you, everybody gets together and, you know, clears out roads and make sure the, the blinds are all in good shape, plants, food plots, do all that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's mostly what most people belong to. I have been on several and I'm actually going to be on another one this year, just specifically for my daughter so I can take her and hunt comfortable and try to get her into it. You know, I feel like she's probably, she's four and she's probably not going to be all about the kayak thing in January. So, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, that doesn't sound like, like the thing that she would probably want to do, but so I got on one, I think I paid, I'm paying like 650 bucks a year to be on this, on this lease. It's a pretty good lease. I actually got invited onto it as a guest last year and killed a buck, um, the day that I went. And so, you know, I kind of, my take on it is I like to hunt um, and I've always wanted to do this on a hunting club, take what I've learned through, you know, pretty much hundred percent public land hunting, take that and apply it on a hunting club mm-hmm. and see if it works. Because a lot of times the hunting clubs are going to be more pressured than a lot of than the, it's 100% more pressured than the public land I'm hunting. I'm pretty much hunting unpressured deer the way that I do it. And go into a hunting club where they've got guys sitting in blinds every single Friday and Saturday over a food plot. That's a lot. There's a lot of pressure and, and it's, and it's consistent pressure too. And so I, I got on it this year and I may hunt it a little bit by myself, but I mostly got on it for, for my daughter, but that's kind of a, kind of give you a, a brief summary of what a hunting club is, is like. I, the reason I don't like them is because a lot of it is politics. You'll find that, and I've, I've had my share of uh, altercations with in, in different hunting clubs that I've been a part of. You've got one guy that's probably in his 50s or 60s that's been the president of this club for years since he was 30. And he's got him and his four good old boy friends that they get first dibs on everywhere. Mm-hmm. And even though they're paying the same amount of money, they they're pretty much. And then if you shoot a buck that they don't approve of or a buck and usually the case is if you shoot a buck that that they wanted to shoot but you shot it then they'll come up with some reason to kick you off of it or whatever and so it's kind of <laughs> yeah it's kind of just <laughs> sounds super fun man. i don't think that would fly in wisconsin that uh sounds like a good old powder keg waiting to <laughs> explode <laughs> that is yeah, super interesting though it's it's difficult man and and that's pretty much the reason why i decided i've been on some good ones too don't get me wrong. I don't want somebody to listen to this that was on a hunt club with me and be like, well, I thought we had a pretty good deal going on there. I've been <laughs> on some good ones, you know, and the one that I'm getting on this year is a good one. Uh, and the way I figured that out is because I went in and killed 100 bucks and they were like, man, that's awesome. That's so cool. They're all super nice and congratulatory. They let me use their four wheeler to get it out. You know, it was like everybody at this place was super cool. 
No, man. I mean, the total sidetrack here, but but uh, private land and deer breed some very interesting interactions at times. The the first time I ever hunted Wisconsin, I was I was invited onto a piece of private, showed up, I brought brought my wall tent, paid for the food for the entire group for the week. We had what I thought was a pretty nice deer camp until I shot a real nice buck. And then uh, it was just, uh, yeah, sour sour grapes. Everybody was sucking on sour grapes after that. The guy, now I'm just now I'm just venting, Sawyer. The, the, <laughs> the guy who, it was actually his dad's land, he, he ended up killing a buck the next day, so we took him to the taxidermist. And he's like, hey, you just put, you just put him under my name. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe maybe get like a, like a bulk deal here. Like it seemed interesting to me. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you yeah, put him put him on your name. And uh, yeah, he uh, he paid for the deer mount and refused to give it back to me. Like he went and picked picked both deer heads up, and I still haven't seen that thing. So that was big guys. We call him an eleven pointer around here, Sawyer. Hey, but uh, you always have the memories. I've got the memories, but that was just like it was like a bizarre thing. Like the last thing that I would ever want would be somebody else's deer head. But yeah. uh, I'm sure it hangs with pride. Anyway. Big sideline there, but getting back to the deer lease or the, the leases, the hunt clubs, which sound like they're pretty close to being the same thing. One thing you said stuck out to me. I would have thought that it would have had like you know less pressure, like a good piece of private, like you know, like oh, then this is being managed, and which I'm sure it is, but like you know, you're talking about the the public actually having less pressure, which that was kind of surprising to me. But I imagine people are like, hey man, I got some money wrapped up in this thing. I'm you know number one. You care enough about hunting that you're willing to spend some money on it. So you're, and then you're mentally and physically invested in it. So I could see how that could be the case. And like you said, I think uh, what you're potentially banking on, and correct me if I'm wrong, but people get into their hunting habits, and you might be able to use that pressure to your advantage. Hundred percent right. And while I'm using the the kayak most of the time, I'm I'm kind of backdooring a lot of these these properties and these areas. Um, and, and seeing a lot of deer, man, like I see, I see more deer on public land than, than most people in Alabama. And I'm not saying that in a, in a bragging way, um, I, cause I don't always see the biggest deer, but I see a lot of deer and because I'm, I'm actually getting to see deer do what they do act like deer, you know, they, they're not, they're not always looking up and they're not like on, walking on pins and needles because they've had somebody in there in their air in their core area every every day since the beginning of the season you know i'm i'm actually getting to watch deer do what deer do and um i know another guy out here who's a freaking killer man he's his name's jamie mckay and uh he uses a lot of pressure other people's pressure to his advantage by going we have pretty steep terrain we have bluffs and in these bluffs you'll find gaps and they're simply called bluff gaps and a lot of deer use those as their exit their exit trail to get you know, from one place to the other. So he'll find an area that he knows a lot of people are going to be hunting on one of these gun hunts and he'll find the the bluff gap that's closest and watch where all those deer are coming. They're sneaking out through that, through that gap and he'll set up right by it and watch those. So he's using other people's pressure. And I would say I've had him on my podcast several times and I'd say that's his biggest tactic that he uses Mm -hmm. is other people's pressure. So um, and a bluff gap is going to be a, a very specific, it's, it's a funnel, you know, it's going to be a pretty basic funnel, but you're not going to find a lot of deer using that just naturally. It's there. They know it's there. You're going to find them using it when they've got no other place to go and they've got a bunch of people pushing in on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you're going to find them using that. So using those type of tactics are a big deal out here. Um, the other thing that, that is different about they're not different. The other thing that is true about Alabama and and really just kind of the big woods, monotonous, no ag type areas. Um, I know Pennsylvania is like this in a lot of ways too. A lot of areas of Pennsylvania can be like this, but our deer don't really get the nutrients like ag land deer. They don't get, have the food to grow just huge antlers. You'll have some. I mean, there's been a couple 200s that have been killed on the place where I hunt. I mean, not many there, but they're, they're there. There's, there's been a few killed, but for the most part, you're not going to find just big, thick, you know, thick bases, giant bucks. You know, most of our deer, I've got a, 
the oldest deer that I've ever killed, the most mature deer I've ever killed on public land. He probably doesn't score 105 inches, um, but his body was just massive, big, huge head on him. Never, I've never killed a deer in Alabama that was that big, but he's got a little 105 inch rack, you know, that's kind of spindly looking. They just, anywhere else that deer probably would have been a, you know, 150, you know, he was, he was five and a half years old and he would have been, he should have been huge anywhere else, but in Alabama, and I was more than happy with him. I mean, that was, that was a, a really fun hunt, but that just kind of t- shows you where we're at. Now there are some, you know, outliers too. There's, there's big deer around, but just because you killed an old buck doesn't necessarily mean you killed a big buck mm-hmm. out here. And I know that's true in a lot of places, but I would say it's even more true down in the South just because of their food, just because of the, what they're, what they're taking in. It just doesn't grow huge antlers. Mm-hmm. So yep. when, we, when you talk about like Midwest versus the South and Alabama in particular, Parker, it sounds like a lot of same but different, both from a culture and a hunting style standpoint. Is there one tactic you use in Alabama? You mentioned you've been hunting other places. You're going to be going to the Dakotas. Is there one tactic that you use in Alabama that you wouldn't use anywhere else? And then the flip side, what's one thing that you do in Alabama that maybe you learned hunting down there and now you use it everywhere else? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I got the second part of it for sure. I'd say the first part just goes to, so I've hunted Kentucky every year for the last like four or five years. And one of the things that I've learned in Kentucky is that I tend to overthink things there's just a lot of deer in Kentucky there's more deer in Kentucky and there's bigger deer and deer act like deer in Kentucky and for years I would overthink it like I'm gonna go in man I'm gonna take my kayak in there and I'm gonna backdoor these things I'm gonna get right on the edge of this bedding area I'm gonna freaking slay right there you know and I just knew that that was gonna work and I'd go out and freaking bust my tail going out there trying to kill these deer and Jim Bob sitting on the in, the edge of a bean field, 45 yards off the road, killed a 150, you know, and I'm like, what the heck, you know? And so I think one of the tactics that I use in Alabama, in Alabama, I overthink things and it's a good thing that I overthink things. It almost, it works in my favor that you overthink and you work hard and you go do the kayak thing. You get up at one or two o'clock in the morning and freaking it's balls to the wall. You're going now. Other states that I've been to where you just, you really don't have to do that. You can, and working hard is always going to pay off, um, but work work smart as well. And a lot of times um, in other states, I tend to hunt it like I'm hunting Alabama and it does not work out in my favor. And then the times when I am successful in those states are the times when I was just like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to go and walk in somewhere and set up and it works out, you know. Um, just not overthinking things. Now, one another thing that the thing that I do here that I absolutely will do everywhere else, and I think this is just a deer hunting thing, is hunting like compounding features. So you've got obviously transition lines. Everybody, most hardcore deer hunters who are students of it know that deer like the edges, as many hard transition lines as you can find that converge into one spot, that's a good spot. Now, the other thing is finding the terrain features that are within those hard transition lines, whether it's a ditch, a ridge, a drainage, whatever it is, finding the, like every spot that I go into and consistently have success here in Alabama. So the spots that I would consider to be my spots that I'm going to go and hunt at some point every season, they all have that, that, factor. They've got hard transition lines, X, basically. I did a podcast with a guy and he said X marks the spot. And so I've been saying that ever since. You find those X's on the on the on the map that have pines, clear cut, hardwoods, and whatever, something else here. You find those, or maybe it's just a three-way, maybe it's just a T and you just got whatever. I can almost guarantee you there's going to be some type of deer trail coming out of where they all converge. But it's going to be even better and you're going to find more buck activity there. If you can find that T with a ditch that runs through it or some type of drainage that comes into it or out of it. And um, that is the common denominator of so much of my success 
is that area. And so if I go on, go to another state, I'm looking for that hundred percent. Every single time I'm going to look for that. It may look different. You know, it may not be a clear cut and pines and whatever, but it might be, you know, hardwoods, a bean field and a cattail marsh or something, I, you know, whatever is in that region. Yeah. Um, but it's going to, it's, it's, I, whether or not I kill something there or I have a good, you know, encounter with a good buck or whatever, I don't know. You can't ever know, but I can guarantee you just about every time when I find those features on a map, it's going to have a, a heavily used trail right there. And yeah. so um, I'm confident in that, man. And so it, it works. It's, it's worked for me in other states. And I just, I'm always going to use that wherever I'm at. I think you nailed a huge, a huge one there about in some ways, just deer being deer. And I don't know why, I guess I'm in a, in a blacktail mood today, uh, Sawyer, but I, sh- I went back home two years ago and shot a real nice buck, uh, at least a real nice buck for me in, in the timber. And it was like big timber, right? But like right on the edge of that timber was a hard transition to like a, what I would consider like a perfectly aged clear cut, like tons of brows, but like, you know, still some, you know, mature enough, uh, you know, uh, furs that, you know, it just, it was anyways, just like what I consider perfect age clear cut, probably like four year old clear cut. And then just beyond that was a bunch of reap rod, which is just thick as all get out. And they're just, I mean, all these things came together in a pretty small area. So I still hunted through that timber, shot that buck. And then my brother got an opportunity. He ended up missing it at another real big buck in, uh, in that same spot. And there was tons of does in the area. And up until we found that spot, we were actually having a hard time finding finding deer at all. Even even decently fresh deer sign. And we jumped down in there and I was like, okay, we're getting close. I mean, there was tracks, there was rubs, there was hard trails. And I just, like you said, just like all those different edges, the diversity of habitat. I mean, I think that's one thing. Like you said, X marks the spot. You can find some of that stuff when you're doing your aerial scouting. Uh, probably like where you are, I'm sure some of that stuff changes, you know, the maps maybe don't get updated and something's a little bit more grown up than you thought it might be or things like that. So you always have to ground truth it, but man, that, that habitat diversity and those hard edges, I think you nailed a real, real big one that you can take to the bank just about everywhere you go. Like you said, and I think having, the, having the approach that you'll do what you need to do to get to a spot you like Parker, that's always what stood out to me personally about kind of your style of hunting. Uh, a lot of guys would be like, man, that spot looks awesome. They'll do the mental math, measure it out, <laughs> vertical gain. They're like, oh, well, it would have been cool, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> would have been cool. I'm not going in there. But it sounds like you're kind of balls to the wall. You're you're getting to that spot come hell or high water for the most part. I Man, and, and the way that I do it, high water is a good thing. So I was going to say, um, he prefers the high water, <laughs> Sawyer. Yeah, I like the high water. No, I mean – I tell you, just kind of getting into this past week was the Tennessee Velvet Hunt. Um, just to your point, like it was one of those tests of what are you willing, what are you willing to do? And I think I found, I think I figured out like I'm willing to do a lot of things, but man, 103 degree heat index after whitetail deer, there's my limit. Like I found it, you know, like. <laughs> I'll do a lot of things in 80 degree weather, but when you've got 103 and when you get to your spot, you're basically just mosquito food. It's kind of like circle of life. So you walk a mile in the heat through a bean field with the sun beating down on you and basically cooking you and the mosquitoes eat you as soon as you're, as soon as you're cooked. Like that was pretty much, that was pretty much the, the chain of events this past weekend. So I would say for the most part, yes, I like, if it's cold, I have had a lot of miserable nights trying to get out of where I'm at or get through the mud or the muck or whatever, trying to get out of it because I just went further than what maybe I should have, but I was willing to try it, you know, and, and see. And I may not go back there because it was too hard, but I'm always going to go in and and just give it my best shot, you know, and but 103 degree heat, man, like there's my, that's my, that's my mark. <laughs> that's where I'm like. I've, I've become the guy that's not going to do everything that it takes to kill a big deer. But, but yeah, like you said, man, I, I love going back and getting back into spots that other people aren't willing to get into because it, it's just the payoff, man. It's so much fun. You know, it's like, it's like telling the story and, and having that experience. I will, I will work so hard 
in in some scenarios, mostly when I was first starting this style, I would work my freaking tail off, go into a spot and kill a freaking six point, you know, and and not even care, not be like, man, I why did I shoot a six point all the way back here? It'd be, you know, it, it was like, man, I shot a deer back here. This story is going to be cool as heck, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm still like that. You know, I, if the story is cool and I worked hard enough to get there and that's when my, my, my antler standards actually go down is because I'm like, man, all this stuff adds up and to be successful on a deer, whatever size it is, I don't even care, you know, like it, it just all pays off. And so telling those stories, whether it's on a podcast or in video format, it just, it's so much more fun than saying, yeah, I went up and set, set over, set over a, you know, food plot and, and not, not that I care. Like those are, those types of deals are fun. I'm going to North Dakota this week and hunting over corn piles, you know, like, like I'm, I'm going to do that. And I haven't done that in years, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to take the easy one when it comes at me, you know, because I know I've got a full season of, of grinding and, and really busting my tail to get back into areas. But um, so I don't care what, how, how people hunt, but I do know that I really enjoy the process and I enjoy telling the story and I enjoy the experience so much more than I care about what's on a deer's head. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that stuff just does. It's so small to me, you know, to, to, to even compare those things. I think that process, like you're saying, is so important. It sounds like it's extremely important to you. And also, like, completing the process, though. Like, you could get back in that area and, you know, some people, maybe including myself at times, would be like, man, dude, like, I don't, I ain't shooting nothing but a big one back in here, you know? But then on the flip side, you're like, God, it'd be so cool to, like, get one back in here and then, you know, pack, you know, have to cut it up and pack it out and do these things. Again, just to be, to to complete that process and do the whole thing versus, well, yeah, I mean, I'm hunting back here, but I'm, I don't know. There's, there, there's pros and cons to both because if you are, if you get back in there and you put in the work and then you are more selective, then, you know, you probably end up hunting more, which is fun. So then you get more experience and more process that way. And then if you are successful, then you're like, ah, oh, man, it was, I, it was the best decision I ever made. Cause I got to do all the stuff and I got the big one, but yeah. And I think there's no right or wrong way Parker to, to your point, like if you're out hunting, like that's a win for me. Like, yep. Awesome. Great. But it does feel like a, a big part of the culture is shifting a little bit to be more story driven and experience driven, whether that's sure. Midwest, Southern, out West. Um, that's something I've noticed. Mm-hmm. So that's been super cool. Like that's how I've always been. I've been forced to be that way. I don't really, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> I just don't really have a lot of those opportunities, which is my own fault. But <laughs> Point being, it's been cool to see it shift exactly what you just said to, man, I got my ass back in here. Like, I'm going to enjoy it, and I'm going to shoot something. If it if I like it in that moment, I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to bring it out, and I'm going to tell the story of it. And I think people are going to be just as excited on that as a huge deer, you know, just because the way that you tell that story and kind of explain it, I think it's going to, one, inspire them, and two, I think it's just fun to hear that stuff, like a big deer with no story behind it versus a smaller deer with an awesome story behind it. Like I, I know which one I'm choosing. You know, that's just me. But mm-hmm. oh, for sure, for sure. And I mean, think of the, I mean, you might have the biggest buck you've ever shot, and the smallest buck you ever shot, but the one has you know A B C D through Z, and the other one's like more of a well, I went out here and I shot it. Like, what what story are you? And not mm-hmm. not that that's a I mean, telling the story is a part of hunting. We've been telling the story for years. I mean, you know, people have been telling their story on via cave paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it, it's part of that primal hunting element. But uh, but then, like you said, like there ain't no wrong way to do it. And like we were talking about earlier, even not even, but like you know, you're gonna go on that North Dakota hunt and hunt over corn piles. You're still gonna. It's just different. You're going to learn things. Yeah. You're going to see things. You're going to, you know, see how deer act, respond to pressure, whatever. You learn from it all. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the other thing too, it's, it's such a fine line as a creator, as somebody creating content in the space of like, you know, most of the time, the way that I'm hunting is going to be on a kayak and doing that, that whole grind. And so people expect that from you. And they also, people expect you to be 
against the other way of hunting, right. which is what I'm going to go do next week. They expect you to be against all that stuff because that's not your style. And, I, and, and I'm not, I've never been against, I try not to be against any type, any type of hunting. My, my upbringing has, I've had a, an interesting perspective on even things like high fence hunting, just because I was raised around it. You know, I was raised in that culture. And so I've seen some of the stuff that other people who maybe have no experience they, they don't know exactly what they're talking about when it comes to a lot of that stuff. So I, I try not to talk down on any style of, of hunting. And I always look at it like this. So I go, I want to go to six flags, right? People have been to six flags to Disney. Let's just say Disney world. Um, going to Disney world is fun. People go to Disney world for vacations and, and nobody's like, I don't want to go to Disney world. Like most people kind of, would go for fun, you know, or you go to the movies for fun. You, there's other fun things that we as deer hunters do that are not deer hunting. Hunting deer, shooting a deer over a corn pile is still infinitely more fun than going to the movies to me. Like <laughs> it's so much more fun. And so I'm going to go do it when somebody asks me if I want to go, you know, like I'm not good. I'm not so like so stuck on my ego that I'm not going to go out and do something that is more fun than most things in the world mm-hmm. just because it's not my style of hunting that I normally do. Like, I'm still going to go do it. I'm still going to have fun. You know, I'm still going to have more fun than I'd have doing almost like 95% of other fun things in the world. So that's just how I've always tried to look at it. It's all the experience. And like I said, like, I don't, I don't really like, I don't, I, I don't have any, first off as a creator, I don't have anything to prove. You could go back and watch videos. I don't think any of us have, anything to prove to anybody. So you're going to get negative comments. People don't like you. People don't like the way you do stuff, whatever you get over that. And, but like, just go out and enjoy it. Like, I think that's what it all comes down to for me. I want to show people that there are multiple ways to enjoy this sport and multiple ways to enjoy the outdoors. And, and I love it, man. Like I love shooting. My dad killed a spike last year. And I got to video it and he got to kayak it out as his first ever is on public land, but it was his first ever buck to kill using the kayak. And he's been watching me do it for years and he's done it with me a couple of times. And that was his first one. And I got it on video. My, it was my favorite hunt that I videoed last year. The emotions being out there with my dad, like the guy who got me into this, into the sport and invested so much into me. And he went out and shot a spike and you would have thought, man, those woods lit up. You would have thought he shot a 150 because we were so excited about it. And I put like so much work into the B-roll and got the drone out. It was the most hardcore footage you've seen of a spike probably ever. <laughs> um, and so like, while I killed some good deer last year. That was the one that sticks out to me and, and to most people who watch the video, that's my favorite video. I've gotten that so many times. Like that's my favorite video that you did because I think most people, they want to see that experience. They want to see. They want to see you have fun. That's more inspiring. Yeah, yeah. To, to bring it all home, I, I'm not going to speak for your dad, but he wasn't on the way in in his mind holding out for a specific sized deer. You know, like Heck no. he was like, "I'm going to bust my ass. I'm going to get in here, and hopefully, there's a deer on this kayak on the way out." Yep. No, I mean, I always that was it. I was. It's the uh, it's the size of the hunt, you know, and so many so many things can make the size of that hunt up it could be family it could be going in with your dad it could be different variables or or elements make up the hunt and different hunts are important or like bigger in your mind for different reasons and tying back into what you were talking about before you know i think now now i'm switching gears but that's what my brain does but uh you, you don't you don't have to pick sides you know you don't have to be like oh, i'm only a public land deer hunter or you know uh hashtag bow only or whatever it's like hunting is fun and and whatever is fun to you go do it and you're going to get different things out of different hunts there's different so you're talking about you know just hunting culture right or and we were talking about this collectively earlier hunting culture in texas is different than alabama than is different in wisconsin that's great go experience that get that perspective don't judge it you know, go get that perspective. See where those people are coming yeah. from. That that's up. You know, or somebody might say, "Oh, you shouldn't hunt deer with dogs." Well, somebody might have grown up 
hunting deer with dogs and that's all they know and that's what they love and that's family to them and they like training those dogs so I don't know I think uh I think I think we spend a lot of time picking sides and and judging and we're all hunters at heart and I think at the end of the day we're getting similar things out of the hunt and I think if we can think about it you know in that regard we'd be a lot better off mm-hmm. you know there's very few hunts that are easy hunts you know what I mean like um, you have the public land guy who's out there grinding and and doing his work there. But then you have the private land guy who works all season long, getting his food plots ready, getting his stands, whatever. Um, and then you have the high fence guy who somebody worked really hard to afford that property and make the money to do that. Like there's always going to be hard work that goes into almost all of those things. The person pulling the trigger may not have been the one that did the hard work but somebody did hard work somewhere to produce that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I always try to look at it. I've got a, a friend here who manages, uh, his dad owns 10,000 acres here of timberland and he manages it for big giant deer. And this man spends every minute, he's retired now. He spends every minute of his life. Like you go out to his property and you see trees that are planted and they're planted there for the specific purpose of whitetails. Like, the reason that tree is planted in that one spot is for the benefit of whitetail deer. So his grandkids go out there and they shoot a deer out of one of his food plots. Probably the first day they'll shoot a big giant buck and it was easy for them. But that man, the man who owns it, he's put in a lot of time working and he's, he's reaping the benefit watching other people be successful on it. So I always try to look at it like that. You know, every hunt is, every most successful hunts there are lucky hunts don't get me wrong those happen where guy goes out on public land sits 50 yards off the road kills a giant buck those happen every once in a while but for the most most part people who are consistently doing it there's there's hard work that went in somewhere it just may not be the guy who pulled the trigger yeah yeah you know and that and that guy that you know gets lucky or whether it's you or me or sawyer or generally there's a heck of a lot of uh, hard work that, that person's put in. It's like, well, you, you, sometimes you just get a get a layup, you know, get that get that game. Yeah. You got to take those when they come yeah. too. That's right. I want hey, I want to I want to bring it back, bring it back a little bit, Sawyer. Uh, you're talking about your rut and have how either different regions or maybe even in the same region, it's like a really really long rut. It's not like that, you know, three weeks of fury that a lot of states might get. So can you kind of describe? What's happening there? Yeah, so our rut's going to be like each area's time frame of their rut is going to be like similar to what y'all are experienced, you know, early November from Halloween through November, you know, mid-November is like the jam up time. Um, that's what our time frame is, is similar, but it's just going to be in a different part of the year. So uh, South Florida right now is in the rut. They've been in the rut in South Florida in like the Everglades area. They're hard horned, have been for weeks, months maybe, um, and they're peak rut right now. And as you move up the state of Florida, that rut like just changes. And so here in Alabama, our rut map really looks similar to like a radar map of of a bad weather system. Um, It's a heat map where they have each thing, whatever, listed. So where I hunt, the rut is going to be basically – December, early December through, I would say December 1st through December the 18th or so, where I hunt is going to be, that's going to be when you want to be in a tree. And I've got it down pretty well. But really that first week of it is solid. Right across the road, maybe 30 miles away, the rut is in January. And it's like January 10th is peak breeding time. And then uh, I shot a a buck uh, several years ago on the last day of the season on February 10th. And he was dogging like four different does out there on February the 10th. And he was rutted up, man, just nasty. I have been scouting in a place close to Birmingham, scouting for turkeys the day before turkey season. So it would have been like March the 14th or so. A couple of years back, was out there scouting for turkeys the day before turkey season. And there was a pile of rubs that were still wet. Like they are still getting after it in March. Then you have places you've got a strain of whitetails that they brought from Michigan or whatever. At least that's what old people have been saying for years. 
is what happened. Um, and they live, you know, like probably 15 miles to the north of where I hunt. And they'll rut like normal, you know, Midwestern whitetails. You know, they'll hunt, they'll rut like uh, early November. And so you really have just this crazy weird rut that happens. So while in, in that one specific area, the rut may only last for those two or three weeks, you're still going to get, you, you can go and chase the rut through the, throughout the state. Uh, and then you, it, when you factor in Florida and Mississippi that all have those crazy rut times as well, you can kind of like from July through February, you can hunt the rut if you have the time. So that was going to be my question, knowing the, the bag limits and how that's set up. Do, are there guys in Alabama that'll just follow that, that heat Absolutely. map right up the state? They'll do it. They'll do it in the those WMA gun hunts that I was telling you about. They open them during those ruts. Like they they if the ruts in that area, there's probably going to be a gun hunt somewhere that weekend, and on one of those WMAs. And so guys will just go from one to the other, just chasing them. It's a uh, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. I typically try to be tagged out by December 10th or somewhere around there. I'm going to hunt a lot of core areas during the early bow season and try to kill a buck or two doing that and then have one bag left for the rut. And so far, I mean, that's worked for me to do that past several years. So, and because I also want to do a lot of out of state hunts too. So right. um, my no, but this is a cool thing about doing this though, is like when I go and hunt Kentucky. So this year I'm going to hunt Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania during the month of November, October, end of October, end of November it really doesn't screw up my rut hunting here at all. So I can, I can go and hunt out of state, do like the big, you know, rut hunts in a Midwestern state and have fun doing that and come back home and it's the rut back home, you know, so I don't ever have to miss, I don't have to sacrifice it. That's wild. That is, I just, every, every year, you know, you kind of hit that magical window, at least around here we do. And you're just like, I wish this would last longer like you know and I'm a little bit like you where I bounce around and do you know a few different states but not not a not deer really you know a lot of different types of critters so like that whitetail rut is just so special but it's so finite here it is um man I like this idea of like six months of whitetail rut I don't know don't don't like it too much because uh, I, I talk to a lot of guys who are like man that sounds amazing you know and it is it's fun um, but it takes a lot of time to, to be able to be efficient in, yeah. in the Southern States. It's hot. It's hot throughout, you know, I mean, what y'all are used to is here is like 30 degrees. That's like, that's like the coldest really. I mean, you'll have some mornings where it might get down in the teens, but it never gets lower than that. So our cold is not really all that cold. And most of the time it's going to heat up to about 60 to 70 later in the day, even through, even through a lot of December and January. So you're hot. A lot of the time you're sweating. There's mosquitoes out. They, they don't ever die here. Like they just pretty much live you around. They don't ever go away. There's snakes that really don't ever go away. And, and it's, it's tough country, man. Like it's thick and it's steep and there's, you go down swamps, you got gators that want to bite your face off and water moccasins everywhere. So there's like, while it is cool that we can do these things and, and I'm, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate more than anything. Uh, it is cool that we can do these things. It's uh there's definitely, it comes at a cost, Yeah, you know, yeah. Like there, it does come for, at a cost. Yeah. I mean, there's pros and cons, you know, during our rut, you might not be able to feel your, your hands and feet, but you're also not going to get bit by a water moccasin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Dang, man super uh so much good information there what uh you got any other questions no i had one i then I, it evaporated I, think I, I was super interested in kind of the alabama hunting culture and i mm-hmm. think you i think you covered that i think that's going to be interesting to a lot of people because i think the south to a lot of folks up here is like this mythic just different place where things are just different yeah. across the board whether mm-hmm. whether they've seen bone collector or whether they have seen any other different type of thing, I think everyone has their idea of what hunting in the South is, and what you described on the podcast 
was nothing that I anticipated hearing. Yep. So that was cool for me. I agree. I I agree with that. And I mean, definitely uh, a lot of really great tips and tactics. But I also think like it's like you kind of gave up a lot of great knowledge and your trade secrets. But the common denominator there is it still takes a lot of work, which is just sure. a barrier to, you know, it's almost like you can give that information up, but person still got to put in an awful, awful lot of work. Mm-hmm. So that's right. That's right. Um, no, I dig it, man. I remember what my question was. Just real quick. Just real quick. Okay. Let's talk. I, everybody loves gear. I love gear. Sorry, you love gear. I think a lot of folks love gear because, uh, you know, that's what you that's what you buy to hopefully mm-hmm. do less work and then you realize you still just have to put in the work but retail therapy what uh what is it like like for a kayak hunt like what's the baseline gear that you're like going in with pretty minimalist man i got camera gear which takes up way too much space and way too much room and uh so i've i've just been pretty minimalist with a i use an everly stock x2 pack that carries all of my my platform and my sticks so i'm using the saddle system from tethered mm-hmm. uh phantom saddle with the one the tethered one sticks and the predator platform and uh other than camera gear man that's pretty much it like i'm carrying all that in my pack with camera gear and going and finding a tree if i plan to stay all day then i'll you know i might bring a like an uncrustable or something you know something <laughs> something tasty i have kids so we got all those all those kind of little foods around mm-hmm. um so I, I, I try to be pretty minimalist, you know, and with the kayak, you, you, you really want to be yeah, because you don't want a ton of stuff on that, that you have to carry from spot to spot. So that's pretty much, I mean, that's pretty simple, but that's pretty much it. Hey, I like it. Light, fast, simple, minimalist, get after it. So cool, man. Uh, Parker, thanks so much for the time. Super fun conversation, extremely enlightening, tons of great info. Always good chatting, man. Looking forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks forward. again for having me on. Yep. You bet, man. Good luck in uh, North Dakota. No deck. It's coming up. Heck yeah. Tomorrow. All Buckle right. up. Buckle up. Go get him, man. We'll uh, talk to you on the next one. Try. See you, Parker. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button, give us a review, or leave a comment. We want to hear what you have to say. If you have a question or topic suggestion, let us know that as well via the Vortex Nation podcast YouTube page or any of Vortex's social platforms. That helps us cover exactly what you want to hear so we can provide the best information to help you with your hunting, shooting, and related activities, and ultimately enjoy them to their fullest potential. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.